Hi, my name's Ryan Perry. I'm the pastor at Seneca Baptist Church, and we are so thankful that you're joining us in this online resource. Our prayer for you is that this resource would not replace your active involvement in a local body of Christ, but would rather be supplemental to it. If you are interested in getting further connected to the ministry of Seneca Baptist Church or to giving financially, please visit our website, SenecaBaptist.org. Thank you and enjoy. Grab your Bibles. Turn in them to Psalm 145. Psalm 145. Uh, if you didn't bring a Bible, there's a hardback black one in the pew rack in front of you. Grab it. Um, if you don't own a Bible, please take that Bible. That's our gift to you. Please use it uh, and, and read it. Let it read you. You get the Word in you, and I promise your life will be transformed. All right? Are you with me, church? Amen? All right. Uh, listen, sometimes you just got to laugh at yourself when you mess up on a song, right? I'm securing Christopher Holsey's job, okay? I uh, can't wait for him to be back. All right, it says, I will extol you, my God and King. Can you just, as we read this, would you just make this your prayer? I will extol you, my God and my King, and bless your name forever and ever. Every day I will bless you and praise your name forever and ever. Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. His greatness is unsearchable. One generation shall commend your works to another. That's our focus for the day. And shall declare your mighty acts on the glorious splendor of your majesty. And on your wondrous works I will meditate. They shall speak of the might of your awesome deeds. And I will declare your greatness. They shall pour forth the fame of your abundant goodness. And shall sing aloud of your righteousness. The Lord is gracious and merciful slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. The Lord is good to all, and His mercy is over all that He has made. And can everybody say amen? So last week, we, we uh, looked at birthmarks of a disciple, okay? And so I want to briefly go through our vision points that we're in a, a series talking about who God's called us to be. We think about three things, vision, mission, strategy, Vision is this is the desired vision of the future. Mission is this is what God has called us to do. Strategy is here's how we get there. Our eight vision points are, you'll see them on the screen. We desire to be a church that reflects heaven. A multi-generational, multi-ethnic group of worshipers who are captivated by and surrendered to Jesus. Number two, we desire to be a family where broken lives can encounter the healing power of Jesus. You don't have to have it all together at Seneca Baptist. Isn't that good news? Three, we desire to declare God's Word through singing, preaching, and evangelism. We believe it's our responsibility and privilege to share the good news of Jesus wherever we go. Four, and last week, we desire to become fully devoted disciples of Jesus who are being transformed to look more like Jesus and are committed to knowing and loving or knowing and obeying the Bible, loving one another, and making disciples of all nations today. We desire, number five, we desire to train the next generation of pastors, church planters, missionaries, parents, and professionals who will serve their communities and point others to Jesus. Number 
6. We desire to deploy people to the edges of Oconee County and to the end of the world as ambassadors of Christ, armed with the gospel and filled with the Spirit. 7. We desire to sow the gospel seed to thousands of people every year and help people who are far from God trust Jesus, join the SBC family, and enter into a process of discipleship. And last but not least, we desire to see Jesus glorified in all that we do. That is who God's called us to be. Our mission is very simple, to help every person become a more devoted disciple of Jesus. Are you out there uh, uh, and you're a, a follower of Christ? Well, this stands for you and me. We are not as devoted as we ought to be. We are all works in progress. We have construction zone stickers on our hearts God is doing a work in us, and the good news is the one who began the work will bring it to completion at the day of Christ. That's good news. And last, we have three words that are our strategy. Are you ready with me? Declare, disciple, deploy. Declare the gospel, disciple the believer, deploy the church. That is a circle. We talk about it all the time. Where does it start? Sometimes it starts with us as a church declaring people follow Jesus. They are discipled by the church. We deploy out from the church. Why? To declare the gospel, disciple those believers, and to deploy them into their communities. It is a cycle that we want to see God work in our midst. Today, um, we, we're looking at training up a next generation, but before we do, I want to revisit the five birthmarks of a Christian real fast. Five birthmarks of a disciple that we talked about last week. Number one is being born again. Some of you, you have had a long tenure in church, but you've never been born again by the Holy Spirit. You've never experienced the power of God come upon you. And just because you've been long-term in a church does not mean you are a citizen of the kingdom. Those are two different things. Are you with me, church? So being born again, number two, experiencing tangible transformation. What's God doing in your life? If I were to sit down at a coffee with you and say, what's God doing in your life? Or tell me your testimony, where would your testimony stop? Would you say, well, I was this age when, God saved, when I got saved. What's God doing in your life now? That's the biggest question for us. Yes, we want to be sure of our salvation, but we are sure of our salvation because the Holy Spirit is bearing fruit in our lives and transforming us to be more like Christ. Three, growing in knowledge and obedience. We talked about last week how many of us, our knowledge is way up high and our obedience is somewhere down here and we would do better if we knew less and obeyed more. We would be a healthier Christian follower of Jesus if we just stopped studying a little and, knew, and, and obeyed what we knew. And we talked about last week how God has gifted you with everything that you need to obey all that you know. And so that's good news for us. Four, increasing in love. The mark of a disciple, John, the beloved disciple, says in 1 John chapter 3, is you, how do you know that you've been born again? You're a part of the family of God. How do you know? Because you love the brothers. You love one another. Jesus sums up all of the commandments, all of the Old Testament, in two commandments. Love the Lord your God with all of your heart and soul and mind and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. And if we're doing those, guess what? We're fulfilling all the law. We're fulfilling all the law. And last, we talked about the fifth birthmark of a disciple is a disciple reproduces himself or herself. A disciple is reproducing disciples. Now, that should challenge us 
because I asked the question last week, what person is going to be in the kingdom because God used your obedience to declare the gospel to them that they might be saved by God? What person's going to be in the kingdom because of your faithful witness? What person have you walked alongside and said, you know what, I'm on the journey to let's go to Jesus together. What person have you helped shape by walking with them? That should sting. Or as one of the preachers said, you either need to say amen or ouch. And I think at that moment, I would say ouch. So we talk about birthmarks of a disciple and in the last one, reproducing disciples. And what does that look like? It looks like number five, training up the next generation of pastors, church planters, missionaries, teachers, professionals, moms and dads who will radically um, be a witness in their community and point others to Jesus. That's what we want to see happen. That's what we want to see now, to do that, we think about that two ways. Each one of us, just like Miss Pam mentioned a minute ago, when you share the gospel with somebody and they trust uh, Christ, guess what happens? You have a new generation, a follower of Jesus. So we can think about it in that way in which we should, and we'll talk about that more to come. But also, I want us to think about there is a generation of people below our generations that's coming up behind us that we want to see raised up into the men and women that God is going to radically change the world through. Are you with me? Don't you want to see that? They were, um, a few of them were sitting right here on these steps. And we want to see them grow into men and women of God who know who they are and know God's Word, and they know that they have a place in God's kingdom redemptive history. Don't we want to see that? That fires me up to no end. It's so exciting, and we want to see that. But oftentimes, let's just be honest, we old people, we look down on some of the generations below us with kind of a little bit of scorn. Come on now. If you were to say the word, those millennials, oftentimes, sorry if you fall in that millennial generation, I am by what some people term, I am, I'm called a geriatric millennial. You're welcome. So I didn't use that research, I used the one that says I'm generation X, because I just didn't want to be in there, okay? But we look, when, we, when you use the term, those millennials... We often don't use it with this endearment in our heart, do we? So I want to talk about the generations for a moment and what God's doing among those generations right now in our midst, okay? So here's some good news. So this is some Barna research in, in August of 2020, okay? Um, church attendance by generation. So in August 2020, this is since 2019, so let's just call it three years of of uh, statistics or research, millennials have uh, increased church attendance from 21% to 39%. Is that shocking to anybody? Because we might look around and go, I don't see them. I don't see them, but 
across our country, 21 to 39 percent in the last three years. Gen X, Gen X, and so Gen X would be 1965 to 1983, that, that area. Their attendance has increased from 24 percent to 32 percent. Now, here's what's interesting. Boomers. Boomers, uh, during COVID, increased in their church attendance, but since COVID has kind of weaned off, so has their church attendance, and it has decreased in attendance to 25%. So I want you to think for a second. The, the, The younger generations that are following behind some of us Are they less interested in spiritual things? No. In fact, a lot of the statistics will say that 65% of these Gen X and millennials are interested in spiritual things. They're interested in having a good spiritual conversation with folks. That's good news. That's great news. Gen Z, which is the one uh, after millennials, because millennials ended 1998. Gen Z followed them. There's now a Gen Y. No, Gen Gen A. I don't know, whatever it is. There's another one after Gen Z. But Gen Z is even more interested in spiritual things and conversations than the millennials and Gen X and even the boomers at this point in time in history. And that might surprise us. But that should also be really good news for us. It's really good news. But in the middle of all of this good news, I want to share some not-so-good news. Um, I read a book a number of years ago by um, David Kinnaman called You Lost Me. You Lost Me. And it was how the church was losing out on a generation. I read it. It was a book in 2011. I read it somewhere 2013, 14, 15. And what it talked about is how Um, From the years uh, 2011, um, that there was a generation that had been lost by the church. They were just not present. Now, Barna followed up with that and did some more research. And Barna said that between the years of 2011-2019, about a million church kids walked away from church attendance. Now, these these are not... Uh, or let me rephrase. These are those church kids who went to camp. They went to all the vacation Bible schools. They were a part of Sunday school. They were a part of all those things. And between 2011 and 2019, nearly a million um, 18-year-olds to 29-year-olds walked away from church. That should also be concerning. That should also be concerning. So David Kinnaman wrote a book Uh, in 2019 called Faith for Exiles, and built built on Barna's research, he categorized um, uh, uh, those who were polled into four categories. Now, you're going to say, Ryan, why are you telling me all this? That's a lot of numbers. Just follow me for a second, okay? Now, out of of those polled, 22% of those polled, I think we've got it up there, Mr. James, 22% of those polled considered themselves, labeled themselves prodigals or ex-Christians. Now, the Bible does not have a category for an ex-Christian because we believe the Scripture teaches us very clearly that if you are truly saved, you are forever saved. 
But this is how they label themselves. Now, here's how David Kinnaman goes on to explain them. They do not identify themselves as Christians despite having attended a Protestant or Catholic church as a child or teen or having considered themselves to be Christians at some point in time. Now they no longer consider themselves that way. 22%. The next group that David Kinnaman noted is called the nomads. The nomads. And they were 30% of those polled. 30% of 18 to 29-year-olds polled classify themselves as nomads or lapsed Christians. And here's how they, they identify themselves as Christians, but have not attended church during the past month. Seneca Baptist has some of those. The vast majority of nomads haven't been involved with a faith community for six months or more. And they call themselves nomads or lapsed Christians. Now, the next group is 38%. 38% call themselves habitual churchgoers. Habitual churchgoers. Now, some of us might fall into this category a little bit in our hearts. Here's what it says. They describe themselves as Christians and have attended church at least once in the past month, yet do not have foundational core beliefs or behaviors associated with being an intentional, engaged disciple. 38% of 18 to 29-year-olds. Now, the Bible, this, this frustrates the fire out of me, and you know that, and we talk about this, and I, 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 I speak to this notion a lot, that they're habitual churchgoers, but they have no relationship with Jesus. And it's easy to fall into that category. Now, that leaves 10%. David Kinnaman, in his research, in those 10%, he calls them resilient disciples. Don't, can, it, can we just stop? Don't you want to be a resilient disciple? A resilient, I want to be a resilient disciple. Now, these resilient disciples are Christians who, and then gives four things, four areas that makes them resilient. Now, if you want these, I can get these to you later, okay? So just shoot me an email at rperry at Seneca Baptist, and I'll get that for you. Resilient disciples are Christians who, number one, attend church at least monthly and engage with their church more than just attending worship services. 10% of 18 to 29-year-olds. Number two, they trust firmly in the authority of the Bible. 10% of 18 to 29-year-olds trust firmly in the authority of the Bible. Third thing, they're committed to Jesus personally and affirm that He was crucified, raised from the dead to conquer sin and death. 10% of 18 to 29-year-olds affirm that. And the last... They express a desire to transform their broader society as an outcome of their faith. This is what this 10% is what we want to, as Seneca Baptist Church, we want to raise up this group of resilient disciples who engage with their church more than just attend worship services, who trust firmly in the authority of the scriptures and are committed to Jesus personally, 
and affirm that he was crucified and raised from the dead to conquer sin and death, and they want to change the world because of their faith. Don't we want to raise that up? Okay, I'm sorry. That was a place to say yes. If not, I think we got a bigger issue. We want to see this happen. Now, Psalm 145, verse 5 says, or verse 4 says, One generation shall commend your works to another and shall declare your mighty acts. And so we have to ask ourselves, what from this passage, what are we commending to another generation? What is this generation, your generation, my generation, what are we commending to the next generation? Now let's go through the scriptures and let's look. Let's look at all the ways that it describes it. They're all underlined. Verses 1 and 2. Your name forever and ever. Every day I will bless you and praise your name forever and ever. Verse 3. God's greatness. Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. His greatness is unsearchable. Commending his name is greatness. Verse 4, it says, One generation shall commend your works to another and shall declare your mighty acts. We're commending these things from one generation to another generation. Verse 5, verse 5 says, On the glorious splendor of your majesty and on your wondrous works I will meditate. Verse 6, they shall speak of the might of your awesome deeds, and I will declare your greatness. So the might of your awesome deeds and your greatness, that's what we're commending to the generations to come. Verse 7, they shall pour forth the fame of your abundant goodness. Do you believe that God has abundant goodness? And shall sing aloud of your righteousness, Verse 8, the Lord is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. The Lord is good to all, and His mercy is over all that He has made. That just is an exciting passage. So what am I commending to them? Some, all that could be summarized, or I guess we should say the name of the Lord. And oftentimes when you think about the name of somebody... You think about in the Old Testament, name brings or describes character. Jacob was a cheater deceiver. He was named that way, and that was the character that he had. So what's the name that we're proclaiming in verses 1 and 2? It it quotes in Psalm 145, verse 4, or excuse me, verse 8 and 9 right here. it, It quotes Exodus chapter 34, where the Lord is asked a question or a demand kind of by Moses. Moses says, show me your glory. Do you remember this? I want to know you. And God looks at Moses and I think from a father's heart said, that's a good desire, but I can't do it. You're a sinner. And if I show you my glory unveiled, it's going to kill you. So what I'll do is I'm going to hide you in the cleft of the rock. Do you remember the story? And he says, and I'm going to let my name pass by before you. I'll pass by before you, and I'll show you who I am. 
I'll reveal my name to you. And it says, the Lord, the Lord, merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. This is who he is. And we're commending the name of the Lord or his great grace that he has showed to us to the next generation. But if I'm going to commend the grace of God to a generation to come, what do I first have to be? I have to be a recipient of that grace. I have to be a recipient of that grace. And, and as you're just sitting here, you're thinking about that, what is the, what is, what is the grace of God? Tell me the story of God's grace. Here's the story in just a moment. God created you in His image. He created you for fellowship. He created you to serve Him and to love Him. He created you to be intimate with Him. And God put us in a garden. And our father and mother, Adam and Eve, rebelled against God. And we often blame them. But guess what? If you and I were in the garden, you know what we'd have done? The same thing. They rebelled against God. They said, we'll be better gods than you are. Not your will, but mine be done. So there, in the garden, mankind, his very own creation, created in his image, after his likeness, rebelled against creator king, and they were separated from God because the holiness and greatness of God could not be in the presence of the sinfulness of humanity. God separated them out of his presence, out of the garden, put a, a, a cherubim with a flaming sword that wouldn't let them back into his presence, sacrificed an animal, clothed their shame, their nakedness, and their righteousness. The animal died instead of an Adam and Eve, and he sent them out. They produced babies and covered the earth, and they covered the earth with those who were in the likeness of Adam and Eve. Sinful. Sinful by nature. And that sinful nature was passed down to each one of us. God gave them the law. Why? To save them? Could the law save people? No. The law was a foreshadow of Christ. God gave them the sacrifices. Could the sacrifices change their heart? No. The sacrifice was a foreshadow of a once and final sacrifice. And one day, when the fullness of time came, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were born of a woman and born under the law. That's us. And He redeemed us by sinlessly living and dying as a sinner. Are you with me, church? And now we have not to work our way into God's good graces, but to receive the gift of God's salvation that Jesus Christ has done what we could not do to earn for us God's good graces. That's the grace of God. And now, because of His life, death, burial, and resurrection to conquer sin in the grave, we get to be a part of the kingdom of God, the family of God, and now we get to commend from one generation to another the good grace of God. Isn't that exciting? You have not been saved to sit on the pew, on the sideline. You have been saved to get your rear end into the game. I thought about the word that I was going to say because I knew I'd get in trouble. 
God has saved us to commend the grace of God and the name of God to the generations that follow after us. But are you a recipient of it? Because before you can commend something to somebody, you've got to be a recipient of it. Maybe I should ask it this way. <clears throat> if, if this room were filled with a hundred fifth graders, and can I just say one day I pray that it will be, would they look at you? Would they look at you as you sit here when, would they look at your life and, and would they see that your life has been wrecked by the goodness of the grace of God and you have been born again to a living hope? Would they see that in you? Would they see in you a vibrant, growing relationship with God? Would they see that as we're worshiping, that we mean what we sing. And I'm not playing church here. Would they look at you and say, you know what, that person right there, I have seen a change in their life. I want to be like them. Because they're imitating Jesus. Would they look at you and say that? Would they look at you and say, that person, I know who their king is by the way they live. Do you know you can't pull the wool over a fifth grader's eyes, can you? That's why I chose fifth grade. Kindergartners? Smarter than them. Fifth graders? I'm not smarter than them. I'm just stronger. Because, listen, when we, when we come together and we sing, do we mean what we say? Be, because if there were 100 fifth graders in here, they can smell a fake. And one of the number one things that 18 to 29-year-olds or the next generation is looking for in a church is not a kind of music, a style of service, but the authenticity of the people inside of it. Is this your worship pose? What does it communicate about your heart? Not saying, I don't know what your heart is. But what's going on inside of you? Men. They're looking to us men. No offense, ladies. But many people are seeing what's going on in the men. You know what a, a healthy, uh, uh, a one of the um, products of a healthy church is when men sing. I don't sing. It's girly. Tell that to David. He has something to say about it. 
men, if there were 100 fifth graders, when they look at you, what would they believe about you? Have you become a recipient of the grace of God? Okay, David Kinneman gives a few things when he says, okay, if we're going to commend the works of God, the grace of God to another generation to form resilient disciples, what are, what are the, the core aspects of what it, it takes to form a resilient disciple? i got five things real fast. I'm just going to buzz through them. Um, but here they are. Meaningful relationships. Resilient disciples want meaningful relationships. How are you, brother? I'm great. How are you? We're fine. Any better, I'd be twins. Is that meaningful relationships? No, they want to know people. When, when people come into our church, they want to know you. They want to do life with you. They want to sit at the table with you. Meaningful relationships, too. Cultural discernment. Listen to me. The church is missing out on one of the great opportunities. Why? Because there are lies. We are drowning in a sea of lies, and oftentimes the church is silent. And we ought to share the grace of God and the truth of God in a kind and loving way. They're looking for truth, and we get to speak truth in a place where the culture has gone crazy. They're looking for cultural discernment that the church would speak into difficult topics in the world. Three, strong identity in Christ. This is what is necessary to form a resilient disciple. Their identity can't be in a phone or a job or in a sport or in a a person. It's got to be in Christ. What happens if I lose the phone, job, uh, sport, person? Who am I if, I, if, if, if my identity is not in Christ? You've got to know who you are. It's not who the world says you are. There is a creator God who gives you identity and purpose. Don't look inward, don't look outward, look upward to Him and let Him define you. Four, mentoring opportunities. They're looking for mentoring opportunities. They need it. We're talking about this in our men's ministry. That young folks, if we're going to build resilient disciples, they need uh, a one-on-one or two-on-one relationships with people who are, have gone before them. Who know how to navigate marriage and family etc. Finances. How do I tithe? I just don't know how to do that. Doesn't make any sense. Well, it didn't when I started either. So let me help you with that. Five, vocational discipleship. Now here's the shift that's changed. What's changing the world is not just pastors, church planters, missionaries, but it's moms who are on a mission to share Jesus with the world that they live in. It's doctors and lawyers and CPAs and you engineers who are leveraging the, the skill set that God has given them, not for the purpose of financial gain, but for the purpose of eternal reward. 
And we've got to be training a, another generation what that looks like. We don't need to force everybody into the mold of youth pastor, pastor, music, whatever. We don't need to do that. What we need to do is say, who's God created you to be and how has God created you to exist in His world and use that for His glory? So let me get really practical and then I'm going to end sometime. We're all going to leave some kind of legacy. You're going to leave a legacy. The question is not what the question is not, will I leave a legacy, but what kind of legacy will you leave? What are you commending to the next generation, whether it's your children or your grandchildren or your church? What, what, are, what legacy are you leaving? Have you noticed that whether intentionally or unintentionally, when you were raising children, you taught them all kinds of things? We do the same thing in church. Unintentionally or intentionally, we teach the younger generations all kinds of things about church and what's important by how we act. We're going to leave a legacy. The question is, what kind are you going to leave? Number two, and, and I heard this quote this week, that you will pass down, hand down, what we are more than what we say. Ouch. Because I get paid to say stuff but I communicate most clearly to my children who I am. Second practical point, God has planned to use every person for the sake of the gospel. Like I said, God did not save you into His kingdom to set you on the sidelines. God has saved you in the kingdom, filled you with His Holy Spirit, gifted you with spiritual gifts that are good for the common good, and when you're not playing in the game, on the field, then the body of Christ is lacking because of you. I lack, you lack, we all lack when we're all not using the gifts. You're not created to sit on the bench. Why? Because God has put purpose in you, an identity in you. And it's our role to pass down to the next generation. One of the biggest lies is this whole idea, the separation of laity and religious leaders. We're all, we all have the same spirit. God said, you're a priest of God. You're a minister of the gospel. You're an ambassador of Christ. Me? Yes, you, but you don't know my past. Jesus does. He knows it all. And he loved you enough to still die for you. And if you read the Bible long enough, you'll find people inside of the Bible who are more broken than you are. And he found a way to use them anyways. The person who had the greatest impact in my spiritual life was not a pastor, but Martha Rodenbeck. I will never forget the ministry that she had in my life. She's my best friend's mama in high school. She told me about having a relationship with Jesus. She taught me to read the Word for the first time ever. 
She taught me to pray and what it was to have a quiet time. I'll never forget that. My life's trajectory was drastically altered by a mama. But simultaneously, no one's indispensable. Do you remember what God, or Naaman, not Naaman, Mordecai said to Esther? He said, if you keep silent this time, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place. And who knows whether or not you've come to the kingdom for such a time as this. They've been saying for a long time that this generation is going to kill Christianity and then this generation is going to kill Christianity and this generation is going to kill Christianity. But guess what? None of them have. Why? Because God, if, if, he doesn't, if, if we don't allow Him to use us, He'll raise up deliverance from another place. You are important. You need to serve, but you're not indispensable. He can replace you and me in a heartbeat, can He? What if, our, what if our youth ministry and our children's ministry had a waiting list of people to serve in it? It's one of the hardest things to get people to serve in. And, and many of you faithfully serve day in and day out in our children's ministry, and we are completely grateful for you. But what if we had a waiting list? What if somebody says, I want to serve in the children's ministry because that's where the fun is? And, and we would go, well, according to my records, you'll get there in about two years unless somebody dies. What if, what if that happened? I mean, we've got children's worship happening right now while I yell at you for 45 minutes. There's children being taught about Jesus right back here. Our Good News Club in, during the school year where we share the gospel with children across the street. We're commending the grace of God. Wednesday night missions. Our CDC downstairs. SCA right over here. And what, if, what, if we, what if we... What if we had a waiting list? Three, we got to let go of the desire for control. How many of you men love mowing your grass? I love mowing my grass. It's the only thing in my life that I can mow it in its instant results. The only thing. My children sure aren't. My marriage sure isn't. The church sure isn't. It's the only thing. I look back on it and I go, oh, <laughs> oh. But one day, I've got to train another generation to mow the grass. Is he going to do it as well as I will at first? Will it have figure eights in it? Probably. But it's good for the family to train up the next generation. Whether it's dishes or mowing the grass or cleaning toilets or serving in the church been to West Africa a lot, and in West Africa, when they want to train up a new donkey, a young colt, they take a foal, the donkey's colt, and they 
kind of tie it to the neck of the, the seasoned donkey, the one with experience. And they don't whip it, beat it, any of those things. What they do is they let the seasoned, experienced donkey train the unexperienced colt how to do what it does by being with it. I'm not insinuating that there are any donkeys in the room. Just It's a poor illustration, but it's the best one I got. But it's time for us to train up the next generation that we can commend the grace of God and leadership inside the church too. And the future's bright, Jackson. Amen? The future's bright, whether it's teenagers or young adults, the future's bright, and we've got to let go of control. I hear all the time this really, really bad phrase, that's my church. And I think what people tend to mean is, like, that's the church that I go to, that I'm affiliated with, but it can also mean, like, I pay my tithes. That's my church. I get a say. And I'm, I'm pretty sure that none of us in the room have died for the bride of Christ. So we need to be careful about how we think about the church. When it's time to train up and it's time, whether that generation following us as teenagers or 30-somethings or 40-somethings, let's train them up and commend it down to the next generation because we want to leave God's church in good hands, last resources have to be invested in the next generations. And we, we spend, as churches, we spend our finances on what's most important to us. And let me tell you what should be most important to us is the next generation. That's why we invest so much of our time, effort, space in our child development center and in the school. And man, I've been fussed at more about the school than probably anything in this world. But if I lost my job today, I would look back and say, that was good. Why? Because there's a generation of children, youth, teenagers who are coming up knowing God's word. Where my wife teaches human sexuality and reproduction from a biblical worldview rather than the lies that the the world is throwing at them. That, that the scriptures are being put into the hearts and minds of children. I wish every one of you were at the, the end of the year um, program for the school. Because there were hundreds of children quoting scripture. So we need to invest our time, our effort, our finances into the generations to come. The lost in our community is the generation to come. Children are the generation to come. And we need to pour resources there. told my wife this morning, I said, I have a lot to say. I'm not sure how I'm going to get it all out. But more than anything, I dream of a day 
where this sanctuary is filled with children. Where we got to buy a bigger bus to take the youth somewhere. Where there's a booming college class. Where we're having to split college discipleship groups into different places because it's too big for one. I dream of a day where the lost are coming into our church to such a degree that we're scrambling to figure out what to do with them. I dream of that day for the glory of God and the future of His church. I dream of that day. Pray with me, Father. We want to commend the grace of God to the next generation. We want to chain up the next generation of pastors, church planters, missionaries, young professionals who will go into their communities and serve them and point people to Jesus. We want to be a part of a movement of God among young folks that families flock to a place like this, not because we're cool, but because we have something that every child and youth and teenager needs more than coolness is truth and grace in the person of Jesus. So help us. I believe, Father, that there may be people in this room who are, have not yet become recipients of your grace. They're working their way. They're balancing the scales they're trusting in what they can do rather than what Christ has done. And so by your grace this morning, if there's anybody here, Father, I pray that you'd speak to them and save them. And Father, I pray that you'd change our hearts, our minds, our actions. As we move forward, Pray that you'd bless our daycare and our school and the 241 students that are signed up for SCA this fall and the 100 that are signed up for the CDC this fall. I pray that you'd bless them, save them, save their families, and help us to minister to them the grace and love and truth of Jesus. If, if there's sin in our lives, convict us. Teach us to repent and to daily trust you. If there are people who are burdened here today with cares and concerns and anxieties, I pray that you'd relieve them in this moment. Broken hearts meet the brokenhearted. You're near to the brokenhearted. 
Father, but meet us here. And we, we, want, we want the ministry of Seneca Baptist Church to live long after us. We want the name of Seneca Baptist to be forgotten, but we want the name of Jesus to be remembered for generations to come. In Christ's name. And everybody said, amen. We're going to end differently. Um, if you recognize that you're lost, you don't know Jesus, I'd love to meet with you. I'd love to talk to you. I'd love to pray with you. I'm going to be right down here. So don't think just because we're closing the service that that closes what the Holy Spirit's doing maybe in your life. But we're going to dismiss a little differently without a closing song. And we're going to go get ready. Because this afternoon, we're going to be a church on mission. And if you'd like to help us, we'd love to see you show up over here at the uh, activity center about 3.30, 3.45. And we're going to meet over there at Applewood Villas, which is right next to Shaver Complex. Uh, it starts at 5 o'clock. So please be there by no later than 4.30, 4.45 if you can. Um, park in Shaver Complex so that we don't take up all of their parking there. And we're believing that God's going to do big things as we share the gospel and love people who may be far from Christ. May God bless you. And I pray that you have a great, a great lunch and a shorter nap than normal because I preached a long time. But I look forward to seeing you this afternoon. You're dismissed.